This is the Oil and Gas Startups Podcast, where we showcase emerging technology and the stories of industry founders, investors, and leaders with your hosts, Jake Corley and Colin McClelland. Welcome back to another episode of the Oil and Gas Startup Podcast. We're here with David Ramsonwick, what's up, man? Hey, how are you guys doing? Thanks for having me. Pretty good, man. So you're in from uh, Denver. What are you doing in town? In from Denver. I uh, got a couple of meetings tomorrow and wanted to come see you guys. Been seeing what you've been doing, and it's uh, pretty cool. It's it's good to get some content in the oil and gas space. Awesome. So like like we mentioned, you know, I saw, I saw you at the SBE event. What was the event called? It was a uh, raising private equity. Yeah, I think they had a, a more fancy name for it, yeah, but it was yeah. basically raising capital for for startups in oil and gas. It was a great event. I loved it. You know, I, I loved your story, and so that's why I reached out. And I was like, I mean, I think our listeners would love to hear just a little bit of the wisdom that you have. I know you wrote a book. We're going to talk a lot about that as well. And I think, I think you kept it real on the panel about kind of like the ups and downs, yeah. the ebbs and flows of entrepreneurship, which is what everybody needs to know. So let's kind of just jump forward to like, what are you, what are you doing now? Where are you at? And then we'll kind of go back. Yeah. So, so right, right now we're at the tail end of uh, the company that we started in 2016 with my partners. It was called One Energy Partners. Okay. Uh, we had the uh, private equity backer Carnelian been awesome partners. Uh, it was a pretty unconventional startup for startup oil and gas. It was the the three original partners. One was uh, like a debt credit banker in New York. One was a private equity guy that I've known for a long time in Houston and, and me out of Denver tech guy down from Canada. If you can even imagine how scary that would be. And so the three of us, the three of us came together and Carnelian was growing their fund. They had just raised fund number one. We were, I think the third, second or third team that they had funded. So multiple cities, no office, really you know, a couple buckets of a strategy, but for for all intents and purposes, it was like the exact opposite of a, of a strategy. It was, we're, we're good at what we do, so we'll find a basin, we'll find an asset. We don't really know, and we won't have any staff to do it, but we'll figure it out. And uh, miracle of miracles, it cool, it, 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 you know, it did. I think they probably hate hate hearing this right now, but um, <laughs> but no, I mean, like, again, I think if you if you merge if you merge like smart people who do the right thing and care with a fund that needs you at that exact time, then it works out and that's where I came up and I know I said it at the conference but my mantra is if you need to pick up the phone more than once to raise money you shouldn't be raising money and and the reason you know at the very superficial level is because they knew my partner mm-hmm. so they were able to give us enough rope and we weren't building a new relationship at the time so as we went for a year that's how we ended up finding the the place where we were which was the Delaware Basin mm-hmm. I know no one's heard of the Delaware Basin for those who don't know it's in the Permian the Permian is kind Small of way. kind of important right now but but we actually started out purposely not going to the Permian and it took us a year and after a year we found a deal and and we had to take it uh and so it, so that's how we got here is it all operated i was mostly operated but again we started out our, our thesis was the delaware is mispriced relative to the rest of the basins in the country and we we had a network and we'll talk about it i have no doubt but it was deal flow was key so there was not a single meeting that we would not take once and we had a software system, it was like a, a CRM, where every conversation any of us had with anybody was always documented. Mm-hmm. And you would enter it in the system and it would automatically email everyone. So we'd have meetings in New York, in Dallas, in Denver, in Phoenix, and wherever. And then we would say, here's what we learned, here's what we said, and it would store it. And that allowed us to go through probably 300 different deals in the first year without a, stri- without a basin strategy. And some guys called us and said, hey, there's this Fed sale coming up in New Mexico in 2016. We don't have the capital to bid it, but would you help us? And I started looking at wells. I'm I'm the technical guy, the token technical guy, I guess. <laughs> and I, I put my hands down. I said, guys, this is the best basin I've ever seen. I was in the Bakken in 2009 when we started. I've done the Eagleford. I've seen Utica deals. We've done Marcellus deals. I've seen almost all the U.S. basins. And I said, there's nothing like this. There's seriously nothing like this. This is a game changer. And we went to our board and they, they backed us. We bid, we, we lost, but then we just started buying seven acres at a time, seven and then 10 and then 40. And then we got a big deal done. We ultimately peaked at 12,000 acres. So, so it was, it was cool. It was, it was a real fun two years. So is that a strategy that you recommend for anybody that's looking to raise private equity? You know, Jake and I have gone through this process ourselves and we have a very good strategy. 
But at the same time, we know private equity likes to look at an exit plan, have a little bit of strategy to make sure that you can deploy the capital. So you said the exact opposite yeah. <laughs> was the way that you guys went. Is that something that, um, you know, it's kind of more just a, a timing thing for y'all finding the right capital backer at the right time? Or yeah. do you think in today's climate that you have to kind of have more of a strategy, especially in a competitive place like the Permian? So, I mean, I, I think it's twofold. So, so one, the, the way I've described my career. So, so when I graduated in, oh man, I don't even want to say, but I think it was 2000. So I've been in Ida for a long time. I was going to run Exxon by the time I was 41. I, I honestly thought I had all the skills and knowledge that was possible for me to run Exxon as a 21-year-old. And it was just <laughs> a matter of them finding me. And everything I did in my career was career-focused. We moved to Denver. I informed my wife I was moving and she could come, which was probably <laughs> the worst. I, I don't recommend that. That was a hard conversation in 2006, but Anadarko transferred me down to Denver. And are still um, married? Uh, we still we are. All we're right. still married. We have uh, we have two wonderful kids, fourteen and twelve. But I have been a much better husband since. Awesome. Since I've uh, I've discovered some of the secrets. Gotcha. Um, but really, in 2012, when I got laid off uh, at the company I was with, I was a huge turn for me. And I went from planning my career and sort of the, the whole business plan concept to I just threw myself in the river and the river had turns and banks and corners. And, and at every time I tried to make the best of what I could at the time. So would I make the recommendation to someone saying, no, you want to be everything to everybody and you'll see what happens. That doesn't work if you don't have a relationship with your capital provider. Mm-hmm. And that's why I say, if you have to pick up the phone more than once to raise money, you shouldn't be raising money because that guy needs to know what you can do and have the patience to be flexible with an existing relationship that they can rely on. I had worked all the basins. We had the money guy. We had the commercial guy. We had everything we needed to make the business plan work, but we could never have foresaw that we were going to be in the Delaware. And so you need a tighter strategy than that, but you you need a deep network before you even start thinking about raising capital. Absolutely. It's crazy how almost everything boils down to having a strong network. Going into your background, so you said that your team, you had, you had your debt guy, your private equity guy on the team. A little bit about your background, yeah. and then how did you get linked up with these guys? So I'm an engineer by background. I graduated from University of Calgary, so I'm a Canadian. I'm actually an American born in New York when my dad was working with Exxon. I guess that's why I always wanted to run it. <laughs> he left and went to Calgary, and I was three. I grew up in Calgary, went to school in Calgary. I always wanted to be in the oil and gas industry, and one of the things my dad and I kind of merged on as a relationship was he had me investing oil and gas, in researching oil and gas stocks as a 16-year-old. And so it just didn't even make any sense to me why this I shouldn't be able to do this. So my first summer job, I think I was in charge of, of engineering, and I wrote a paper on why we should buy a certain company, and I just dropped it off on my, de- on my boss's desk in the morning at like 8 and said we should go talk to the CEO. This is a great deal. And they're like, this isn't even your job. <laughs> I was like, doesn't, doesn't matter. It's going to be totally fine. So I'm kind of that engineer that had the BD background at Anadarko. They obviously rotate you through a lot, but I was one of the first engineers they hired just to do reservoir. And from reservoir, I did strap planning. And from strap planning, I did production and completions. And really the only piece I've missed was drilling. So anyway, so I had done, I had done that in Canada. I got transferred to Denver in 2006 with Anadarko. I left in 2009 to go to Interplus and helped our team build the, the position they have up in the Bakken now, so 75,000 acres. Um, it was on an Indian reservation, so you had to deal with the NDIC, the BLM, the Corps of Engineers, the BIA. There was no electricity, so no pipelines. <laughs> it was all private equity guys, and here was this like 32-year-old that just did not know any better, and I was rolling around talking to everyone as though I was you know, the man, which I, I look back on now and I kind of laugh that I had so much balls to do that, but it it worked out, uh, worked out really well. And then, like I said, in 2012, they restructured. I I think, I think it, I know I thought I was running the company and I wasn't, I was a cog in a bigger wheel. And I also know that when they restructured, it was because I wasn't listening to anybody and I thought the company would epically fail, and it's done exactly the opposite. It's a great asset. The team's run it great, and they've gone on. So 2012, I got thrown in the river and built a whole bunch of private equity relationships. I was raising capital for a failed startup in 2012. That's how I met one of my partners. And then I started another company that was a non-op Bakken with another partner I'd met through that, and our private equity guy was on the board. So the three of us came together at the right time when we were all trying to do something different, and that's how we did it. It's really interesting that you talk about 
how you thought you were running the show at, at your previous company and you thought the company would fail because I think a lot of people, myself included, when you're working at a corporation, you start to get a little bit of an ego problem and think that you're irreplaceable. Yeah. And I don't know if there's any better industry to let you know that you're, you are replaceable than oil and gas mm-hmm. um, because it, it does happen. And I think some people kind of get stuck in that mindset that nothing can ever happen to them because they're the heart and soul of that company. Yeah. And so you think that you're recession proof. And I think a lot of people get complacent and, you know, going back to your comment about raising capital from private equity, how it's all a relationship and networking thing. I think a lot of people quit doing those things while they're at a, at a corporation for, you know, 10, 15, 20 years because they don't think that it's necessary. And, you know, when that day comes, if it does come and it happens a lot in oil and gas, you need to have those resources to be able to fall back on and be able to, you know, essentially drop your ego and, you know, understand that we are just all cogs in a machine when you're working for a company. So, you are. yeah, it's really interesting to hear that that take from you. Well, you know, I mean, at big companies, and again, we'll get into this, but but the be all end all of what our career is isn't you know being a successful startup guy, and it isn't running a big company. It's it's doing the right thing every time. And it's a bit of the network thing, but yeah, you, you get lost in, in your level of importance. And, and the reality is there's so many talented people and that it's always egos that get in the way of doing deals, having partnerships, when friction, when relationships and businesses break up, mm-hmm. inevitably it's about ego and, and no one does it perfectly, but yeah, you, you need to, you need to do the right thing by everyone always. And then they say good things and then word of mouth comes around and eventually you get paid back in spades. But we were talking about this before we got on the, the sales guys. And some of you out there might be sales guys, the guy who calls and just says, Hey, this is what I do. How are things? And doesn't have an ask isn't going to get a sale today, but in six months when I think about the guy I enjoyed talking to and I have to go buy some casing, that's probably the person I call. So the problem, and it's the same with raising money. You just lost your job. You want to raise money. So you're going to call NCAP today and they're going to give you $500 million. No, but if you build the relationship with that guy today and in three years when you need them, they'll probably call you before you call them. And, and I think that that's really the trick of, of having a relationship and not needing anything from it because it'll give to you before you take from it. I think a lot of people forget that no matter what business you're in, you're in the people business first, mm-hmm. first and foremost. And it is about building those relationships with, with obviously with your vendors and with your employees and everybody else that you interface with. And I think that's forgotten a lot in our industry, especially being you know a commodity industry. It's like, ah, oh, we just sell oil, but no, you're, you're still in the people business. Yeah. You know, so so you got thrown in the river in 2012. Mm-hmm. How did you kind of find yourself in entrepreneurship? What was, I know we talked about it a little bit before we have it on the mic, but what was, what was that experience like? You know, I mean, I think, I think secretly deep down, I always knew I was an entrepreneur, but I didn't admit it. And all my friends sort of knew. And so when I came out of the closet as an entrepreneur, I think people, <laughs> people, uh, people were relieved that I had, we've all known. Yeah. Um, well, it's funny at the, as you know, at the SBE thing, I said, I have a, like a absolute foolproof test for if you're an entrepreneur, step one is find a friend. Step two is ask them, am I an entrepreneur? And step three is believe the answer. And if they say, yes, you are. And if you, if they say, no, you're not. And I, so I just have always thought outside the box. A friend of mine worked for for Exxon, and uh, he was in the marketing department. He didn't was an engineer, knew nothing about marketing. I don't know. Again, this is the big company mentality. It's why working at a big company is so awesome. You get thrown in this marketing department because it's part of your rotation. And he was trading NGLs in Canada, and he was not allowed a price screen because it was Exxon, and it wouldn't fall into any of their compliance. So he basically had to like rely on like public data, and traders would just call and were just pillaging him for money. But Exxon didn't care. And he said, what should I do about this? I said, like, well, what you do is you drill a hole in the wall to another office that is an Exxon, and you can feed in a cable and have a different <laughs> computer, and then you could get like the screen and sell better. And he said, that's why you don't work for Exxon. <laughs> so I sort of always knew, and, and, and I liked it. And, and it was the best part of my career, I think, as I was learning that I wasn't that important and that luck plays a huge part of your career. You need, you need champions. You need other people helping you. 
But anyway, in 2012, I wrote the book and then I did a startup and then that failed and I lost a lot of money for a lot of my friends and family. And I learned that that was probably a bad idea. I started doing consulting. Again, my network kept bringing me jobs, bringing me opportunities, kept is that starting the, companies. The tuition cost you were talking about? That's the tuition cost, yeah. So, was that an EMP startup? It was an EMP startup. It was 2012, and we were trying to compete with Lynn Energy. Okay. Uh, in, in essence, it was going to be a Canadian MLP. So, you could raise money in Canada from Canadian investors that are very comfortable with EMP, and you were going to pay a distribution. And I thought it was a great idea. I was the technical guy, I was the Denver guy. We were going to raise $500 million. We're going to buy the perfect asset, run it privately for two years, and then go public and get a great multiple. And we just needed a big pension fund to do it. But let's build a business plan for nine months. Mm -hmm. And then we'll all throw in our own money and we'll pay ourselves salary and we'll get offices. I think we spent like $100,000 or $120,000 on office rent out of the $2.4 million we raised. And in like on month nine, after we had a 800 slide deck and we've analyzed everything in the world, but it wasn't even a real deal. It was a theoretical deal about what we might go do as our business plan. We went into a room with a pension and the pension said, yeah, we love this idea. This is perfect, except we don't invest without a private equity sidecar. So if you would go talk to these guys, then they can invest 5%. We'll invest 95. You'll be golden. And we sat down with this, this uh, private equity fund and they said, you know, tell us about the business model. It's great. It's cash flow. It pays dividends. We're going to go public. It has 12% yield. Like this is the greatest thing in the world. And he's like, 12%. I don't take a shit for 12%. <laughs> and that was, that was literally the end of the meeting. Just and we shut the binder, shut walk, the out. binder walk out. And we'd, we'd, we were out 1.3 million at that point. And so again, don't raise $1.2.4 million from friends and family when the business plan you're trying to run is $500 million. Okay. So I always say salaries are dumb. GNA is dumb. A business plan is dumb. Don't have any of those things at the beginning because they're not going to work. And you just, there was zero chance that that business model was going to work. But I didn't know because I, I was not the guy in charge of raising money. So when that failed and I felt like I had a big debt to friends, I just started grinding it out. Some of the people I met, like my partner in the last business, he was one of the guys I pitched to, one of the 80. Mm -hmm. And he didn't, like, he didn't like the business model, but he liked me. And so three years later when he was thinking about doing something, he called and said, hey, you want to do something? So it's that kind of, I had never even really thought that that would ever happen, but it just sort of meandered and that's what worked out. Mm -hmm. So How important was that filled business for you? Oh, it was extremely. Again, it was the the hubris of my, my career. I, I shot up in Anadarko. I shot up at Interplus. I was way more senior than my period. I'd been lying about my age for so long, I forgot how old I was on my 32nd birthday because I was. we had a party, and my wife's like, happy 32nd. I'm like, what do you mean? I'm like 39. She's like, no, you're not. <laughs> but it's because all my peers. Years old. All, my, all my peers. All my peers were 15 years older. They all had kids. They all had other things. And so I was racing through my career to show how smart I was. Mm -hmm. And I forgot about a lot of the other things that were really important. So the failure, I remember going home after being fired and going home and sitting on the couch with my wife who was about to leave me. And uh, I, I had canceled out of a family trip to go to Hawaii that had been planned with her entire family for a year. And I just said, I'm too busy. I can't go. And I got fired nine days before that trip. So I ended up going, but she was going to Hawaii and then she was flying back to Calgary with the kids. And I went home that night and reintroduced myself to my wife and my two kids who looked at me and I said, I have no job. We have no health care. I don't know what we're going to do. And that, I don't know, it wasn't humility at the time, but that kick in the teeth it made me realize that like, it just isn't all going to be good fortune. And so, I mean, I can't tell people who are out there, like I am blessed. I am so blessed. My wife stayed. I'm so blessed the relationship I have with my kids, but the success I had here is as much luck as anything. It was exactly the same business plan. It was exactly the commodity cycle was wrong. The team was wrong. I wasn't as smart as I, I didn't know enough then that I know now, but this success, and we had a wonderful success, but this, this was a lot of work, but it's luck. And, and that's why the guys who sort of say, I've done it once, I'm going to do it again. You know, you maybe lose that hubris. Success is very much a, a thing of a matter of timing and momentum, catching those waves of momentum. But I think a lot of people get afraid of going out on their own because they are afraid of failure. And to me, 
failure is inevitable, especially in entrepreneurship. And I've heard investors say that they won't invest in first-time entrepreneurs, that they're looking for the second or third-time entrepreneurs because everybody's going to have their failure at some point. So if this is your... You know, we talk a lot about our successes, but we don't talk about our failures a no. lot. We've got a whole bunch of things that both of us have been involved in that have completely tanked. Yeah, I mean, I, like I started... years and years into things. I started my first company when I was 21 years old, hauling water with uh, water trucks and... And I, I thought I was, you know, onto something, and I was. Nice and Steve. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I was gonna be running uh, the the West <laughs> Texas water game, and out of falling out with my business partner, where he was stealing revenue from me, and you know, I was floating the costs. I was uh, running wireline at the time, and my paychecks were going into that business to float everything, and. I learned a very important lesson from that, and you know, I, I look back at all the failures that I've had, and. It's wisdom and experience gained from those failures that I, I'm, I you know I can keep building on and yeah. learning for my future ventures. So I think those are. There's just so as many lessons that we them. learned from like e-commerce and marketing stuff that completely tanked in the past that we've applied to all the businesses that we have now. I mean, think about even with the podcast. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Well, there's no new ideas, right? There's just the new time for this idea that yeah. happens to work this time. Or, you know, those, those wells, I always say like, you, you can say no to drilling a well 20 times at a management meeting. You only have to say yes once. And so like, there's just so many failures, but it's that one time where that well happens to make sense right now. And then it works out. But yeah, my first, my first failure, I always laugh about, I played squash on the U S national team as a kid. So like I, I didn't have jobs cause all I was doing was coaching squash, playing squash, training for squash. Interesting. And so my, my, literally my first job was running a painting business. It was one of those student franchise businesses that you do yeah. in college. And I was sitting in my class and this clipboard went around and it says, do you want to make $10,000 this summer? So of course I was like, yeah. So I <laughs> wrote yeah, my name dude. on and then I just forgot about it. I got a call. I got interviewed. They didn't tell you. And I went through three of the most grueling interviews of all time and they didn't even tell me what I was going to be doing. So then like, they're like, congratulations. You are going to be awesome. You are, this is you like, here you go. Here's your bit. I'm like, what do you want me to do? They're like, you are running a painting franchise this summer. And I was I have never painted before. <laughs> that, that doesn't matter because I knew I could sell. And so we went to this uh, like home show in January and the business was going to start in April. I sold $50,000 worth of painting before the summer had started. No one had ever done that to the best of my knowledge in Western Canada. But I'd also never estimated or painted before. So I think number one, I sold 50,000 because it was probably $100,000 worth of goods <laughs> that I sold for 50. And, and so day one of the painting season, I had 13 employees. I bought a truck. I had three paint crews. I was running around like everywhere trying to run this franchise. I made zero money. I, in fact, it cost me probably five grand that summer. I sold my book of business by about July because I was like, I'm getting crushed. But this one guy that worked for me, I thought I was so and he I sent him to to like clean window like sand the windows broke the window I had to explain that to the customer fix the window I'm like dude you got to just go and like bring the supplies so I let him lent him my truck he had a five gallon pail of black oil-based paint and he didn't close it and so he drove off the customer's driveway it bounced out of my truck and went all in his driveway so we lost five gallons so then cleaned that but I still wouldn't fire him so then I finally put him on power washing like the pre-clean clean crew. So he's power washing. I call him after. I said, you know, 4983 Forest, you got to go clean the deck. It's awesome. So he goes, cleans it. I call him. How'd it go? He said, man, that chemical is all Like they went straight off. Like there's no paint left. It was super. I said, oh, man, I've... Like, I'm the best manager ever. I found this guy at home. I've saved his career even though I should have fired him. Like, oh, my God. Phone rings. It's the customer. He says, hey, I haven't seen anyone come by the house uh, yet to do the cleaning. You're painting tomorrow, right? I, I said, no, no, my guy was there. He's, he's taking all the paint off your deck. He said, no, no, no one's come by. I'm here at the house. So I called the guy back and I said, you went to like 4983 Forest, right? He's like, no, no, 4893 Forest. That's where I went. <laughs> so I sent the guy I was trying to save his career to the wrong deck and he power washed like Every piece of like gone. <laughs> so anyway, that was that was the uh, that was the first failure that was epic, epic. Hopefully that guy's not listening to the podcast. <laughs> yeah, no, he was. It was it was it was priceless. It was a priceless one. 
So failure is good. So you had the so you had the first the first Lin Energy competitor business. Then what was the next one before? So Lin after Energy? then after that, I started a consulting business, and okay. and my the partner I ultimately started the non op Bakken with was he he had been in oil. He he was a he is still a huge mentor to me. But he had started an oil company in '83, driving around in a Wrangler and just bought old well bores. And mm-hmm. that field happens to be the Wattenberg field. Some of you may have heard of it before. Mm-hmm. And he was a, he was not even in oil and gas. Like he he was a California. He used to be a Gerber baby. <laughs> he like he, and he's just he was incredible. And he just built this business, knew how to raise money. And when he wanted to get back in oil and gas in 2012, he'd heard the Bakken was amazing, and he started personally buying minerals. But he didn't have a technical background, so he said, "Help me evaluate it." So I built him models, I built him spreadsheets, I helped him because I'd been in the Bakken, and then that relationship spawned into a fundraising that ultimately learned turned into Vitesse Oil, which is a big uh, Lucadia Jeffries backed non-op players, probably 500 million or three quarters of a billion dollars now. And, and again, he, he knew, he knew what I was going to do long before I ever did. And the partnership split up because it wasn't a great fit for what they were trying to accomplish and what I was trying to accomplish. But it was, we're still great friends. And it was, it was like the best way that a, I don't even want to call it a partnership breaking up, but like he knew I'd learned everything I needed to learn. And it was, it was time for me to go off. And that experience then spawned into more consulting gigs, helping Sundance Energy in the in the Eagleford. That then spawned into helping TPG with their business, which then spawned into building this company with my partner. So, you know, I look back and it all makes sense. I, I even know the headhunter that connected me to the person that made all of those relationships happen. And he called me in 2011 when I knew I was probably going to get axed. And it was him meeting the guy from Canada who introduced me to the guy who built the non-op company who introduced me to the person who brought me in at Sundance who introduced me to the guy that was on my board who introduced me to the guy that became my partner. Isn't and had, had it not been for him. Time. Isn't it surreal to look back and just yeah. think about how that happens? I mean, we're, we talk about this all the time. Like I was like, man, I, I met this one guy through Instagram. I flew out to L.A. to meet him multiple times and one time he's like hey i know a guy in houston we meet up with him that guy ends up investing in our businesses becomes a business partner of us and like you can trace the origin back and it's just like how the fuck does this and happen somebody, you never plan that so out. many never. of those meetings were like ah do we really want to go do we actually want to make these yeah. plans and then you end up falling through with it and it's just it's so crazy i think i think we have a habit sometimes especially like on really really busy weeks we go into certain certain meetings with kind of like a bad attitude sometimes we've caught ourselves doing that totally and we're just like, oh, we're just getting beat up and constantly in meetings and stuff. And then we get out of the meeting, we're like, oh man, like this is going to be great. Or sometimes we're like, ah, we don't know what's going to happen. But then six months down the road, a year down the road, it turns into something just absolutely off Amazing. the wall as a new client or a new business partner. You never really know where things are going to go. Yeah, it, it's really wild to just, I don't know, I think it's just kind of like a result of taking action. Like if you're constantly just taking action, something is going to come yeah. from that. And it's just a matter of timing. And I don't know, it's just... You look back on it and it's just like you can never plan for all those pieces to come into place. It's just something that happens. Well, it's, it's, what, I, it's what I laugh about, right? So I, I write this book in 2012, effectively just based on a failure. Yeah, let's talk about the book. What was the name of the book? So the book's called What the Fuck is Wrong with Everybody Else? <laughs> and the subtitle is... It's on Amazon, so you guys can't find what, it. What the subtitle is, What They Didn't Teach You in Business School. And, you know, it, it really was a tongue-in-cheek book, but... I read it now because I always said, you know, no one's going to read this book other than the title's awesome. And the original plan for the book was 151 pages, of which 150 were just blank. There was only one chapter, and it was chapter one, losing weight. Eat less, exercise more. Yes, it is that easy. And that was it. That was the whole book. And I, I wrote that, and I had just been fired, so I had some time on my hands, and I had some processing to do. So I just I just wrote. And 300 pages later of you know, random meandering stories, much like this podcast is probably going to be, but that's what I wrote down. And now I reread it as I think about publishing it and all the lessons I learned then in failure, I'm doing exactly the same things, but it's in, it's in success. People think you're smart. Whereas it was, as you said, you, you just take action and, and again, let the network give to you. I wasn't asking for anything from the network. I got introduced and then this guy and then this guy and three years later, all of that goes. And one of the stories I said back then was, I'll always take any meeting once. 
So don't meet, don't waste time on someone two times if there's not going to be something they're going to offer you. And offer, I mean, don't mean it in the negative sense. But I mean, some some meetings are, and we all know, some meetings are just bad meetings. You're yeah, like, what was sure. that? Absolutely. But if you didn't go to make the meeting, that relationship in five years might come into something. You know, they might win a hundred million dollars from their uncle, and a, some sort of Nigerian prince gave them money, and yet they're the only people that responded, and they got the money. <laughs> and now he doesn't know anyone in oil and gas except the one guy that's the meeting five years ago and there's your fundraising right <laughs> so anyway yeah, we, i'm not gonna get into that story but <laughs> there are some funny uh developments that come come out of that and Absolutely. you know in today's day and age it's i hardly go into a meeting anymore where there's not a value exchange from both sides just because with technology i mean you can literally get on linkedin instagram facebook and do homework on people before you reach out to them or before you accept a meeting with them to see if you feel like there's going to be whether you can provide value to them or they provide value to you. Mm -hmm. So I think it's pretty easy now to make I sure think, that you're getting ROI out of your meetings. On the contrary, I think there's also been a few meetings that we've gone into that we went into it thinking that, man, like we like try to pre-vet somebody on LinkedIn, but the whole story is not necessarily on LinkedIn. Yeah. And there's so many missing pieces. And so I think, I don't know. It's kind of a toss-up. Sometimes, sometimes it's like, okay, well, this is obviously pointless. But other times it's like, oh, wow, well, this guy... Like you said, has some rich uncle who just came yeah. into a billion dollars and you wants never, to invest. You never know what's going to come from something. Well, you before you go, you yeah. talk about LinkedIn. I, I wrote the recent blog. So after this SBE, some people are like, I don't understand what it means that I should only make one call. Like that doesn't make any sense to me. So I was writing a three-part process that was just sort of why I believe that. So obviously we've talked about you have to have a network. You have to have built the network and invested the time. You can't get fired today and wake up tomorrow and say, I am going to raise $500 million. Like you are not, don't <laughs> try, go get a job and figure it out. But you can spend all this time building a network. So of all the social media, I, I'm not, I, I tried Twitter because the publisher said get on Twitter. I, <laughs> I, I, I can't, I don't understand Twitter. I don't, I, don't I don't understand Facebook, but LinkedIn, what I love about it is not the new relationships, but typically if you know someone like we'll be connected, I think we already are, but we will actually be connected and you can go through the list of all the people you actually know. So you don't need to vet them because you know them and it's yeah. almost like your Rolodex and they change jobs and companies and they do different things. Things, but you can go through and find the 30 or 40 people you've lost touch with yep. that, that you really enjoy, you really like, and that sort of tick off the box. For a startup, I say you need three things. You need to know have someone who understands the money. You need to have someone who understands the commercial. And you need to have someone who understands the business slash operations. Now, if you're going to be a non-op company, then you don't need operations, but you need the business. But the commercial guy will tell you, there is no market to sell non-op to. So like it is very hard to raise money for a non-op business, notwithstanding that private equity raises money to get two and 20% fees. Mm -hmm. And so therefore deploying capital is like their number one goal. But even they know they should not be investing in non-op businesses right now because there's no one to buy them. Yep. There is no business. And I they literally had the exact same conversation. I don't know if you know, do you know Patrick George? Uh -uh. Accelerate resources. Well, I, I know of accelerate. I don't know Patrick. So we're meeting, we have a meeting with him in what, like two days. And so we had the same conversation, what, two weeks ago? Yeah. Because that's pretty much what our strategy has been. We said, that, you know, hey, we've already been an operator. Let's go, let's go build a non-op, right? And we identified the base we want to go in. I won't go into the business model or anything like that. But he was like, listen, most of the PE sponsors are, are I think, from what he said, everybody has about two or three in the portfolio now. But they're realizing that he, he walked through a whole list of of non-ops that have tried to sell. And there's just like no extra strategy. There's no way. No. You pretty much have to hold the assets for about 10 years. Yeah. What's the deal with it? Well, I mean, and again, I think this is the this was the beauty of our business. We had the money, we had the commercial, we had the ops. We just didn't know about it, and I didn't certainly know how to phrase it. So why? So number one, with non-op, you don't you don't have control, mm -hmm. and so th there are Anadarkos and Oxys and Exxons right now that are getting AFEs from Anadarko and, and Oxy and Exxon yeah. that they are not operating, and they have this massive slug of capital that they don't control the completions, and everyone in their staff says the reason that we're the best operators because I'm the best, I'm the smartest, my completion design is the best. How many companies have said that they have the best completion design, and you go talk to every one of the other companies, and they say how stupid those people are. <laughs> I mean, so, that's the way the oil field works. 
works. Everyone else is stupid. Everyone else is stupid. You're the smartest guy in the world. So that you haven't been fired enough, if that's what you think. But so because of that, there's this non-op. So so operators really only want to buy their own Mm -hmm. operated because they control it. But if you bought it before they did, you just stepped in line and whatever price they were willing to offer these guys to buy it, they weren't willing to pay. So unless something changes, i.e. commodity price, or, and I think this is sort of my projection and we'll talk about business plans, but the MLP market was essential because it was a dumping ground for private equity to sell into an upward moving commodity price environment mm-hmm. where retail investors, dumb money, would buy from private equity, which is smart money. Mm-hmm. When the MLP model blew up, now the only money that's out there are big companies and private equity. Well, private equity will never buy non-op other than to make it 2x and big companies don't need it because they have all the inventory they need. So we need a model that is a better MLP model that's more efficient. I'll use Merit as an example. It's effectively a private MLP that has 30 funds. They you buy a field. Merit? Merit Energy, yeah. Okay. So they have I think they have 30 funds last time I heard and they raise them individually for individual assets from pension funds from rich individuals and they go, I'm going to buy this field, I'm going to own it for 15 years, I'm going to drill it, manage it, operate it do the whole thing and then we can effectively give it away at the end because we'll have squeezed every drop out of it. And so the problem is our, our business model in 2000 when I started, oil was 30. And now oil, then oil was 140. Well, everyone looks smart in a rising commodity environment mm-hmm. and so private equity grew so big that you could buy land and flip it. Drill a well, buy land, flip. Well, that doesn't exist anymore. I mean, you see the stocks right now, you're getting crushed yeah. and and. Owning assets means you need to control drill pace, you need to control CapEx, and you need to drill your returns. So I think you're going to see from private equity bigger teams, bigger capital commitments, bigger drilling programs that are going to backfill until public companies need it, which really means that they've run out of inventory and oil is 100 bucks. And non-op, unfortunately, doesn't fall in that. Water floods don't fall in that. Like, there's a lot of cool ideas, but private equity isn't the right place to raise that capital. It also opens up a gap in the market. Like, I've seen some other boutique capital firms. um, I mean, they're not small, raising $750 million funds. And their investment thesis is based on the fact that, hey, look, the Permian, or private equity is focusing heavily on the Permian. And there's all these other undervalued assets and operating teams and other plays those are who we're focused on. They're not so much worried about an exit. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they're they're using these investments as uh, financial instruments. So that opens up a gap in the market. And also, when we talk about this, Jake, I think about digital securities and security tokens on blockchain because you all, all you're hearing is the market is illiquid. There's no there's no secondary market. There's no way to exit these uh, assets and these funds. And we can get in that at some other time. I'll. Probably we just need to have like a whole fucking yeah. I can talk two hours when it comes to blockchain and digital securities. So we need to talk about that sometime. But that's uh, it is a really interesting and valid point because you know Jake and I we've talked about non-op for a long time now, and we hear it from you. We've heard it from some other guys, and it it is a a layer of resistance when you're raising capital because you have to think about that exit strategy. And if there's nowhere to sell it to, then it's going to be hard to pitch that to any investors, especially to private equity. Again, and like. You know, I wrote a blog and it says what you need to know about money and the laggers. And the Liger, of course, from Napoleon Dynamite fame. And I compared private equity guys <laughs> to Ligers. And and people were worried, like, you can't write that. But I love private equity guys. Just like I love technical guys. I love family office guys. Like, everyone is good. Silicon Valley guys. Mm-hmm. Everyone is good at what they do. And the commercial guy on your team needs to understand the business model. Mm-hmm. And so water floods are awesome for a private investor. So if you know a guy that has $50 million that wants 20% of his portfolio in oil and gas and he doesn't want to own equity. He wants to buy a field. That's the one guy you're supposed to call and say, Hey, I got the perfect project. But the problem is people, because it's convenient to go to private equity. I hear they have lots of money. I can go get it. My buddy just made $50 million. Like, here Mm -hmm. we go. But that's, that's not how it works. So you have to have the right business plan with the right capital provider at the right time. And the only way that comes together is if you know the money people before you start making phone calls. Absolutely. So when you wrote this book, I want to go back to the book. <laughs> what the fuck is wrong with everyone else? Before we got on the podcast, yeah. before we were recording, you were telling us about it. And you said that you started writing that once you were laid off. Yeah. What was the reason for getting, you know, for, for writing that book and starting, starting the blog 
Was it, you know, were you just going through a period of time where you needed to kind of put your thoughts out on paper, kind of interested from a psychological yeah. standpoint? Because I've found this that, you know, when I like putting out content and I find I go very heavy on content, you know, when I'm going through a rough time, that's how I kind of Process. express my feelings. Mm -hmm. You know, I tell people that I use social media as my diary a lot of times. Mm -hmm. So I'm just kind of interested to see, you know, what caused you to write this book in that period of your life. Well, I mean, first of all, I, I know that people on the podcast might laugh. I am an engineer. I know I don't talk like an engineer. I would <laughs> I would be one of the more extroverted engineers one could could probably mean. I like the creativity of it. We have a we have a, a game with some friends of ours where we randomly pick a topic and we randomly pick an object and we have an hour to write a short story. Then we go for dinner and we read the story afterwards and then you vote to see who won. So I've always loved the creativity and the communication. And I think communication, if you can't communicate effectively to investor, you have no chance to, to win. So I think communication is key. And one of the best ways to learn to communicate better is to write. So write. for me personally, I was literally used to working 20 hours a day and getting 300 emails a week or a day and 50 calls and just being wanted. Yeah. And I had nobody call me and nobody write. And I did not know what to do with myself. And I was sitting at a like computer. I'm not important. Anymore. I'm not important. I, I went to NAPE in 2012, right after I got fired with a piece of paper that said, we have, we were going to raise $500 million to buy your asset. Do you have an asset? And I was like, I was running a four rig Bakken program on an Indian reservation with like hundreds of millions of capital and like the asset was worth $2 billion and I'm handing out a piece of like what has happened to my life. And so I wrote it and, and again, we talk about humility. Some people, I used to be a lot more arrogant, so you can imagine how arrogant I used to be if I'm <laughs> this way now. But self-reflection I think is extremely important to improvement. And so I like to think that I do listen and self-reflect. And for me, the first time I really listened was when I saw what I wrote and, and experienced like who I hurt and, and the decisions I made and just, I was focused on the wrong things. And so writing helped it process. Then it sort of, it has been a joke. I've told everyone I wrote a book and they're like, oh, when do I get to read it? I said, well, it's not really published. They're like, well, then you're a writer, not an author. And I'm like, <laughs> mm, that is a fact. So I want to get it published, but I decided to start blogging it. Just the, the important pieces that were relevant. And like I said, I would never have planned to go on a podcast six weeks ago. Yeah. But I, I like teaching. I like being helpful to people. I like, you know, people reach out on LinkedIn and say, hey, do you have 10 minutes? I just want to bounce some things off you. And then I say, yeah, cool. Call me in eight weeks and let me know how that goes. Yeah. And so writing is an access to that. Is your blog? Our, is your blog? It is. Yeah. It's at davidramstonwood.com. Okay. We need to include that in the show notes. Yeah. Uh, I should put that in. Yeah. davidramstonwood.com. Is there a hyphen in Ramsey? No hyphen. You know all about branding. I, can, <laughs> I, I signed up for a conference up for once people. and they, they put my name down as Ramstein Wu, um, which, which the first time I joined Twitter, I, that was my handle, was at Ramstein Wu, the German Chinese equivalent yeah, of myself. Say, that's the German and Chinese in one. I, I, I kind of dig it. Exactly, right? Actually, some of my friends do call me Ramstein Wu. But, um, <laughs> Hold on. That, well, that's what I'm calling you from now on. There you go. <laughs> Yeah, we always laugh. My, uh, I've got a whole hundred followers on Twitter, and my Twitter handle's the Oil God, just because it's been a running joke uh, between me and Jake for a long time. And about the only people that engage with my tweets are Blueberry Capital. So shout out to Sam <laughs> Ernst over at Blueberry Capital. But um, I use, you know, we're talking about social platforms, and just for anybody listening, LinkedIn is extremely powerful for oil and gas when yeah. you are wanting to build your network. I use Twitter to connect with uh, coastal VCs. Uh, that's where all the venture capitalists hang out is on Twitter. So I meet a lot of them on Twitter. And then oil and gas, I mean, I've built up almost my entire network. I mean, obviously, I spent the past decade in oil and gas. But just what LinkedIn's done for me in the last year um, has been incredible. So I encourage anybody that's listening to this, to, especially if you're going through hard times, if you're looking for a job, I tell people this all the time that are looking for a job is start writing. Start putting out video, telling your mm -hmm. story, getting exposure, making friends, and you, you never know what will come from that six months to a year down the line. I think the um, there's a book called the, the Daily Stoic, and then there's the Daily Stoic Journal. I don't know. I know you used to do it. I haven't done it in a while. I've kind of fallen off. But that usually helped me because it had prompts in that of just things to kind of think about, you know, what is important to you today or what, what challenges are you kind of going through. Where you really don't have to think about what to write. You kind of just answer the prompt, and it kind of helps you kind of walk through those things and Honestly, that helped me be a little bit more grounded. And so mm. I should encourage everybody to 
look into something like that. Yeah. Yeah. It's nice to have an authentic conversation with you, David, where you talk about, you know, self-reflection and really looking at who you are, dropping your ego. And I, I think that's not something that's talked, you know, everybody usually tries to act like they're, you know, Superman and that they don't deal with these problems. But I think every CEO, every founder goes through these issues at, at some point. Mm -hmm. So it's important to hear that from someone that's doing well now. And, you know, especially to someone like Jake, Jake and I that are, you know, a few steps behind you, you know, being able to hear those things from someone that's made it because it is very important. What's next for you? Yeah, that's what I was about to ask. Yeah. Like, let, let, let's fast forward a little bit, you know, where are we at now with uh, One Energy and what's next for you? So so what, what was super cool, although my partners, I think, would probably disagree at, at times, but so the mantra for private equity historically has been get big and, and create an opportunity for a new base and entrant, right? And, and so in 2017, Marathon bought BC Operating and then they levered that to buy Black Mountain. So like in aggregate, there was this massive base and entrance. So everyone was trying to get huge. Well, when we sold our assets, we actually broke it up. So our 12,000 acres went to three, 4,000 acre packages. And the reason we did that was not because private equity said that's the smartest idea, although our board was actually instrumental to driving that decision, which again is why we have such a great relationship with them. But we broke it up. So we sold the first, the northern piece to Centennial Development. We sold the southern piece to Lilith Energy. And then we had kept the last piece. And again, a great fortune from the same headhunter. I had met a guy who introduced me to a woman who knew that these guys were looking for a New Mexico asset. And so Franklin Mountain Energy was the acquirer of the last piece of One Energy. And as part of the deal, they wanted the team to go with them. So this last asset, we're now running for them and now growing a business with a, with a different capital provider, a private capital provider. And we feel just so blessed. And again, could never have planned it. It makes total sense in hindsight, but the right buyer at the right time who needed the right asset and we knew about them. Mm -hmm. And so we're so now, although I don't know my official title, but COO with Franklin Mountain Energy and, and we're still in Lee County running the same asset. Uh, they were successful at the Fed sale, which was super cool. So now we have a eight, 9,000 acre asset, mm. private capital behind it. They want to drill wells. They want to own it forever. They've been incredible to work with. They've built a massive business themselves. So I'm getting to learn a lot by not not sometimes being the only adult in the room. <laughs> um, so anyway, it's, that's so that's what we're doing next. Awesome, man. If you had one piece of advice to give anybody that's listening. Let's take a jab at any, I mean, we have a lot of people that reach out wanting to start their own EMPs. I think, yeah, I think that's probably the, so we have, we have a, a nice mix of people either wanting to start either a tech company or an EMP is probably the two main things that we get. And I think more so than the starting the EMP lately, which is funny because at the SPE event, I think I was the only, one of the only people in the room who wasn't an engineer who owned wells. <laughs> I thought I found it extremely humorous, right. but I think it also goes back to what you were saying about being able to communicate. And most engineers in the room, from my experience of talking with them, can't communicate the way that they need to. Mm -hmm. um, that'd be my piece of advice. But yeah, I mean, it's it, so. I would say, why are you leaving your job? Right? Yeah, it's cool to run private equity, but we talk about hubris. Like there were times when my we were going to drop gym. Like we were on the verge from dropping gym memberships going down to one car, like, I mean, for real, like big life decision. And that was like 18 months ago. And now two years, it's, it's just amazing. So, so if you're going in to get money and that's the reason you're not doing it for the right reason. I always say money follows good people, but at the end of the day, on average, on a risk adjusted basis, everyone in our industry makes the same amount of money. Mm -hmm. But for every one, one energy partners, there's 30 guys who didn't get a chance to to be successful. And, and so I would say, why are you starting your own company? And, and then two, do you honestly have the network to have the commercial, the money and the technical in your existing team? I talked to some people at the SP, great guys, but it was three engineers coming together being like, Hey, we want to raise money. I'm like, well, your skill sets are so they're the same. Like, yeah. where's your finance guy? Where's your land guy? Overlap. Where's your money? So, so you truly need to have the right team composition and you need to do it for the right reason. And you need to do it because you love the industry and building and running it. The money might follow, but the money might not. And mm -hmm. so I guess that's the advice is don't, don't go see, don't go looking for the grass is always greener. Cause I guarantee when you get over there, there's like dog shit and just bad. There's just bad that no, you can't I love, see from I afar. I love that you bring that up because it was literally just 
what, yesterday or the day before I told Jake that nobody can question my commitment to being an entrepreneur because I could go out and get a fucking $200,000 a year job, yep. just like the one that I left, instead of, you know, like like you, we had to really make some some cuts in our yep. in our personal life, and you think when that- When you left your job, it was, that was like six months prior to us buying the wells, like eight months prior to us starting Deep Rock, so it was literally like- Right. He quit, and I was just like, oh, yeah. <laughs> I was like, I guess, I guess we're already doing this. There was, there was no plan. Right. Um, and I don't really recommend a lot of people to do that. But, well, and but, you talk about the podcast. I mean, you guys would never, six months ago, I'm sure, have seen what this was going to be and, and the joy you get from it. That's the right reason to do something. You're in the river, and this works. Sometimes it doesn't. The amount of traction that we've got from that point has been just nothing short of incredible but it doesn't mean that it hasn't been a challenge and even I think if nobody listened just the relationships that we've built out of it and the enjoyment like you said that we get from doing the podcast yeah it's just been so i don't know it's been fun yeah and i just i think i think people have a misconception most of the time that if you're leaving a well-paying job especially in oil and gas that you're going to be taking a job that is equivalent or better right. in, in terms of compensation. And that's not how it works a lot no. of times, you know, as entrepreneurs, especially in the startup startup phase, you're playing for the long, long game, long game. and you have to be focused on that and you have to be able to find joy in what you're doing mm-hmm. every day because you know, there's not money there. To, to you really no. enjoy that. just like waking up and getting punched in the face yeah. every <laughs> single day. I don't know. I think we're like, we're all kind of like a little bit crazy. I don't know, like I love it, but at the same time, it's like, man, it's <laughs> well, and I mean, and you know, like eating shit for a long time. <laughs> I mean, and this, this is like my friend. They always say, "I'm sitting." I'm always, again, I'm the operations guy, right? So when we drill a well, I worry about the one bad incident. Ninety-nine times out of hundred, it's going to go okay. But like, I'm worried about the spill. That like the bad big things that you get insurance for. That's all I think about. So I think I've I've developed into maybe somewhat of a cynic. But uh, uh, this is my theory of what's coming in oil and gas. You know, today oil's 50. It was 74 six weeks ago. That level of volatility, even though OPEC cut almost as much as they should have cut, and Canada has cut 300,000 barrels a day out of the market, oil's still down below what it was. There was a short rally, and the volatility is massive. There are the haves and the have-nots right now. If you have Permian, it is it is the best asset I've ever seen. I, I didn't believe it before. For those not in the Permian, it is. Eagleford is not, is not, Bakken is not, Utica is not. So if you're going to be an oil player, you have to be in the Permian. Therefore, once, and no one wants to own oil and gas equities today. If you owned oil and gas equities today in the last six weeks, you're getting crushed. Getting wrecked. So here's what's coming. You're going to see equity for equity mergers, just like you did in 2014 when Kodiak bought Whiting. Mm-hmm. That was a zero premium, hundred percent equity deal. That I gave a speech. I, I gave a speech in Denver when oil was like seventy five bucks, but that share that deal was done about ninety. And to a room of Denver people, fifty of them, I said the Balkan is dead, and this deal is the evidence of that. And everyone was like, "You are crazy." I'm like, people are moving out of the Balkan. Rig counts going. I didn't know oil was hitting twenty eight bucks, but I did know that people thought the spacing was different than it actually is. Mm-hmm. And and so again, I come back to the Permian. You need to be there. So if you're not Permian, companies like Newfield and Encana are merging because they need to get better balance sheet and they need to upgrade their tier two and tier three inventory. Sorry, Encana and Newfield, that's what you did. Chesapeake, <laughs> Wild Horse, exactly the same thing. Denbury, Penn, Virginia, all 100% equity deals. But then Fang, Diamondback, goes and buys Energen. That's you know Permian for Permian. And then you have uh, Concho buying RSP. Permian for Permian. What does this mean for our industry? Technology's come a long way and we're going to downsize. So 30% or so of the jobs in our industry, and especially for technical folks, are going to go away because you need to get bigger, not smaller. So these new startups that people want to go start, it's awesome, but you better have a huge amount of capital and be willing to drill and be willing to stay in it for 10 years and love it because you're going to see Devin get bought Anadarko get bought. Devin, um, huh? Or yeah. Anadarko, geez. I mean, we're, I think I really, I truly believe we are in a phase of consolidation I believe that, that should have happened in 2016. But it need, we need to get huge. And therefore, there needs to be a niche for these small private equity startups. I don't know what it is yet, but be careful before you leave your job because it's not 2014. There might not be a job waiting for you around the corner. Yeah. So you said you need a large amount of capital to play in this, obviously. Say if I was going to pick with the phone once, right, and yeah. raise the capital, what do you think is the sweet spot? 
That's a great question. We found the unicorn a little bit on, on everything we've done. I think it, it depends on your strategy and it depends on the capital. So I can't say what the sweet spot is. If you have a water flood deal and they're great deals, you need to find the right capital that is small and wants to own it forever. Mm-hmm. If you want to go do Permian, you have to go to the NCAP, Blackstone, Quantum, like with a team that's really done it, with a CEO who actually has a track record and go raise a billion dollars. Mm-hmm. You know, you look at the success that Felix had. Felix is the only guy in 2015 I could think of that did what they did. And then they immediately went into the Permian and they're going to do it again. But that team is is huge and it's huge capital. They're going to need to raise to do it again. They're going to need to raise a billion or two billion dollars. And so if I raise 50 million, can I compete with Felix three? I have zero chance. So I need to pick something different and match the strategy with the capital. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, it's funny. We were looking, you know, through digital securities. We're very involved with blockchain and the cryptocurrency crowd. And we started talking about how we we're going to have to raise $50 million for our uh, strategy. And a lot of people on technology and especially cryptocurrency like $50 million. What do you need 50 million for? It sounds, you know, sounds like a cash grab. I'm like, man, 50 million doesn't get you any kind of respect in oil and gas. <laughs> doesn't go very far. doesn't. It doesn't. So, you know, that's an interesting question, Jake. You know, we've been told from people that $100 million is a good balance, um, especially if you're looking at non-op plays. So we're just kind of curious to see if you had any insight to that. But it's a very loaded question as no, well. Our, 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 sponsor, our sponsor focused on the 50 to $100 million. Yeah. It worked out awesome for what we were, and it would allow us to be flexible. Mm-hmm. But we drilled three three wells farmed out two wells. So five total wells on 12,000 acres yeah. that we sold. And, and arguably the market's really tough right now to sell. Yeah. It's other than share for share, share for share deals. There's not a lot of deals getting done. And so five wells is not a business, you know, drilling with a rig for, and there's lots of examples of guys who've done drill funds now mm-hmm. and, and they're drilling. So a hundred million dollars doesn't really let you drill. Yeah, $100 million gets you probably into a $30 million asset with $50 million of capital and $20 million of slush. And again, for non-op, who do you sell to? Because you can have the greatest idea in the whole world, which our 2012 cross-border MLP spin-out cash was a great idea. It's just that there was nobody buying it. Mm-hmm. And that was the name of our game. So I love non-op. I think non-op deserves a place, but until there's a vehicle to monetize, yeah, it, I don't know how you buy it. So yep. since I don't know that today, you can't buy it today. Yeah, In six months, maybe there's a product that makes how many, sense. How many non-ops have gone public? What is it, just Northern Oil and Gas? Uh, Northern Oil and Gas, and then there's some, as you guys said, financial products, mm-hmm. sort of people who don't have technical people but have bought a lot of non-ops. So there's non-ops in every basin, yeah. but the only one that's out there is is Northern. And mm-hmm. and look at what they're doing, which congratulations to them because they have revamped the portfolio, but they're using equity to buy other non-op guys. And mm-hmm. it's just issue shares, issue shares, issue shares, issue shares. Interesting. And, you know, I, I think if you guys haven't looked at rbcrichardsonbar.com website, mm-hmm has every news article, every stock, every commodity price, every differential. I look at it every day. So I try and read like who's doing what, who's buying what, what's in people's investors' presentations. When company A has an Eagleford asset that they bought for $6 billion, and then like a year later, it's no longer in the investor deck, you gotta be asking questions on why. And, and you can really get some insights into what plays are popular, what order are companies over the course of time reordering their PowerPoints. Mm-hmm. And, and that tells you what basin you want to be in. And no one focuses on non-op. So it's hard for a public company buyer to buy non-op. It's not going to be in a slide deck. Mm-hmm. Since you're such a uh, news nerd, what's mm-hmm. your prediction for commodity prices over oh, the next year? Man. You got you got to put it out there. Uh, I want to see should, how it is. We should ages. start a board with like <laughs> when we put we put bets up like hundred dollar <laughs> yeah. bet. Yeah. Yeah. We um, should do that. <laughs> you know, I mean, I so I am actually I was bullish. <laughs> this shows how wrong I was. I was really bullish energy equities in that they're going to go up in the Permian for the last six weeks and mm-hmm. oil going from seventy four to fifty. I didn't see. I do know that. You cannot afford to run, I don't care what companies say, you cannot afford to run real programs in other basins other than the Permian at 50. And even in the Permian with $8 differentials, 
you're going to see it go down. The thing that I think about the most is the duck count. Have you guys done a podcast yet on ducks? No. The Permian has 3,800 ducks and they're growing 200 ducks a month. So you're drilling roughly 650 wells a month. You're only completing 450, which is the most they've ever completed. So as a result, you have like... inventory nine months of inventory of wells that haven't even been completed which doesn't make any sense so effectively you could shut down rigs a hundred percent for 12 months and just complete wells and Mm -hmm. not even notice so i think that companies are going to start doing that i think you've you've quietly seen press releases come out saying live within cash flow buy back debt buy back shares ramp down I think we're going to go away from growth so i think u.s companies are actually going to finally break and stop completing as fast which should be good for oil but only if you consolidate the industry mm-hmm. you can't have every you know 100 people all ramp up and then ramp down there needs to be more efficiency where eog owns devon and you know and then they're running less rigs concho owns Anadarko, yeah. Marathon owns WPX. Like these are the and, things. And I've been talking about happen. that for a long time. You almost kind of get this yo-yo effect where you're ramping up, ramping down, and you know, in theory, which you know, sometimes oil is so volatile that it doesn't seem like there's any fundamentals behind it. But from an inventory perspective, it's not sustainable to to have inventory just up and down like mm-hmm. that. So I agree with you 100%. I think there's going to be a lot of consolidation in the market over the next one to two years, and I think it will be better for commodity prices over Oil the long at 60, time, so. gas at three. That's sort of my base case. I like I, it. I can live with that. Our economics are like 50-55. So. <laughs> there <laughs> you we're, go. We're good. <laughs> All right, man. Well, covered a lot today. I'm sure we can have you on some other time to just probably like in a year we'll see how that uh how yeah. that oil prediction Where, comes out so you're, you're still living in denver but still living in denver yeah, yeah. so our, our team our team we're, we're building out a full team to run okay. a big company so are they going to be based in denver or we're based in denver so okay. i have some office space now okay so we'll we'll be hiring a couple positions here in the next year and then as we ramp up drilling at probably the end of uh 2019 mm-hmm. early 2020 okay that's when we'll really really be going so awesome well jake and i make it up to denver every once in a while so we'll make sure to link up with you next time i always look forward to it all right man we appreciate you coming on the show today thanks guys Come on.